Well, good evening, church. Again, it's great to be with you again today as we gather this evening to uh, study the Psalms. And so why don't we open with prayer? Father, we thank you again for this, your Lord's day. And Father, we thank you for being our Lord, for being our God, our Savior. Father, for being all that you are, the great I am, God. And Father, we pray that your spirit would now take full control of our hearts and our minds, God, and that, God, he'd open the scriptures to us, God, and that, Father, we would see how we are to apply them to our life, what we learn from them, Lord, and, uh, God, that we would grow by them. So we thank you now, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses 113 through 20 tonight. And it's about how to deal with the enemy, how to deal with the enemy. If the Christian life depended on only meditating on the word of God and loving God, the Christian life would be easy. But you know what? As Christians, and and I know you know, we have enemies. And that makes life in this world difficult. It makes life as a Christian difficult. Like the ten faithless men who spied out Canaan. If we look only at the enemy, and if we look at only ourselves, we'll be discouraged. And we might even want to quit. But if like Caleb and Joshua, and we look at the Lord, we can conquer the enemy. G. Campbell Morgan said this, If you have no adversaries, you had better move out and find the places where you get them. Most people don't invite opposition, but the loyal servant of Christ will not run from it. So let's begin now with verse 113 of Psalm 119. And the psalmist said, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. He's basically saying, I hate those who are undecided about you, God. He says, my choice is clear. I love your law. No undivided Um, mind there. Now, our last study, uh, last Sunday night, taught us that the Bible helps us to see clearly the right way that we should walk in life. And these verses this this evening tell us that if we're going to walk the way God wants us to, then we have to make up our minds. We have to make our minds. We have to be determined that we are going to do it. We're going to walk in the ways of the Lord because there are many dangerous roads in life and there's a lot of opposition. But how are we ever going to keep on obeying God's word in a sinful and tempting world like the one that we live in? Well, this psalm answers those questions and explains quite a few of them. One thing is for sure. We are never going to obey God's word unless we have decided. We are firm in our commitment that we're going to do it from the very start. If we're going to live for God, We have to decide to obey him no matter what. No matter what kind of temptation Satan throws in front of me. No matter what things I might face in my life that would draw me into sin. Our biggest problem is being double-minded. That is, indecision. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's the same word that's used in 1 Kings 18.28. That is the word double-minded. It's the same word that's used in uh, 1 Kings 18.28 when he says, How long will you halt 
between two opinions. The New King James says falter. That is, when Elijah was on top of Mount Carmel, when he was challenging the people of Israel to follow Jehovah rather than the false god of Baal, he said, how long will you be halt between two opinions? How long will you falter? How long will you be double-minded? Double-minded people are people who know about God, but they haven't totally made up their mind to worship Him and to serve only Him. They're people who want both God and the world. They want the benefits and the blessings of God, but they want their little bit of sin also. James talks about the double-minded man, and James says he's unstable in all of his ways. When our faith and our emotional state is up and down, you know, being tossed around by, by our environment, by things that are going on in our world, by different causes, there's going to be a lot of, of, of indecisiveness in what we say and what we do. One thing is for sure, the double-minded man cannot please God. We have only one God to trust in. We have only one God to serve. We have only one God to rule over us. We only have one God. And this God, and knowing this, should keep us going straight and steady. The man that's unstable, hey, he won't be able to do well because he will be all over the place, up and down, here and there, backward and forward. You know, if you've ever been to the beach, and probably most of you have, you've watched the waves. They come in, they come out. They go back and forth. They're restless. You know how restless they are. And they're controlled by wind. They're controlled by gravity. They're controlled by the tide. Controlled by various things. Doubt will leave a person like this, unsettled, restless. It will leave them like the waves. Ephesians 4.14, Paul said, We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carry about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Christians must not remain spiritual children. When it comes to understanding, faithfulness, and courage, they need to become mature believers. And Christians have to quit being tossed to and fro like a ship rolling on the waves. We see an example of the, of the, of the, of the sea in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30. He says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on the great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For he commands and he raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. Notice, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Again, if we are committed to the Lord, if we are devoted to the Lord and we're walking in the Lord, we will, we will experience those, those, those waves of, of, the, of, of life, like the waves of the sea that are tossed back and forth. But the psalmist said here that, that, that he calms the sea. He calms their distresses. He makes those, those, those waves stop. And it says, then they were glad because they were quiet. And God guides them to their desired haven. The wise man or woman cannot think that life is going to be so. We can't, you know, and, and I don't, if we're reading the scriptures, we're not going to get that idea. 
But we can't think that life is always going to be smooth sailing. That there's always going to be clear skies. You know, that there's never going to be any bad weather. We have to be prepared for all kinds of weather. You know, and God's word has to be his compass. It has to be his guide for us. And I remember when Kathy and I used to live in the mountains, a mountain community, several years ago. Uh, the weather could change in, in, just, in, in just a short amount of time. You know, I used to drive about 180 miles round trip from L.A. to this mountain community called Pine Mountain Club. But I always carried a backpack with snow gear, snow boots, you know, snow pants and, and uh, heavy jackets. And, and I had chains in my car because I knew that the weather could change. I'd seen it change in a matter of hours. You know, it wasn't, get, it wasn't fun getting caught in a snowstorm without being prepared. And the day that we moved, we, were, we, were, we had our, our furniture stored in, in a storage place in Saugus. The drive from there to, the, to where we live was about an hour away. At 1030 in the morning at Saugus, it was clear as the sun was out. And Kathy called me from our house in, uh, in the mountains. And she said, Joe, you better hurry because it's starting to snow here. I couldn't believe it. When we got there, it was snowing heavy. So, uh, again, you got to be prepared. Christians must not be blown around, tossed by every wind of doctrine. That is false doctrines, false teachings, new, you know, uh, crazy trends that are blowing across the land. False doctrines are like those windy days and it will blow around everything that isn't firmly grounded. We need to be anchored deep in Christ. And if you want to stop being tossed around by the storms of life that, that will toss around your emotions and then you're up and down, you have to trust God to show you what's best for you. You need to ask him for wisdom. You need to trust him to give it to you. As James says, he'll give it liberally. Then your decisions will be sure and they will be solid and you can rest in them. The psalmist says that he hates those that are double-minded. And that he might even be talking about himself when he says that, or else he wouldn't be, keep asking God to hold, uphold him according to his promises and to uphold him so that he might not sin. Every good man is aware of his thoughts, what he's thinking, because God knows. God knows our thoughts. He knows our thoughts, the psalm said, even from afar off, even before we know them. God knows our empty thoughts. He knows no matter how we look at them, how we justify them, they're sinful and hurtful. So we should look at them as bad and awful because they're not only, they not only take our minds off of what's good, it opens the door to evil as well. Jeremiah 4.14 says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. Notice, how long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? How long will you let your filthy heart continue to go unwashed? And then Jesus said in Matthew, Mark 7.20-23, He said, it's what you think about that defiles you. He said, from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, a slander pride, and foolishness. All of these things uh, come out of the heart and become evil thoughts, evil thinking. 
And then evil action usually starts with an evil thought. If we let our minds dwell on things, entertain evil things like lust, envy, and hatred or revenge, pretty soon it will lead to sin. Don't defile yourself by focusing on evil things. Even though the psalmist couldn't say that he was free from, from, from vain thoughts, he could say that he hated them. He could say he didn't tolerate them. He could say he didn't entertain them. And that he did what he could to keep them out of his mind and to at least keep them under control. He says, I love your law. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your word. And your word, he says, forbids those vain thoughts. You see, the more we read God's word and the more we love God's word, the more we'll get control of our vain thoughts and the more we'll hate them. Why? Because they're contrary to the whole word of God. And the more attentive we'll be against them so that they don't draw us away from what we love. Think about it. How much time, and, I'm, and I'm, this is, I was thinking of myself as well. How much time are we spending listening to the daily news about the coronavirus? We are so preoccupied with it in comparison to the time that we spend reading the Bible. You know, and, and, I, and I've noticed this is the longer I listen to the news about this virus, it starts to fill my mind. It occupies my mind. And I begin to think, you know, how long is this going to go on? You know, how many more people are going to get infected? How many pe- more people are going to die? And, and we keep hearing on the news the, the, the stories and we see the, 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 the misery and the death and we see the, the medical workers, how tired they are and we see all that's going on and just all these different things. It starts to bring you down. It will start to bring you down. You know, instead of, instead of meditating upon the things of God. You know, and it's important that we grasp this here. Again, you know, it, it, the longer I listen to the news, the more it brings me down and it begins to occupy, you know, my mind. You know, how about, you know, the necessities that we need, you know, the risk of catching the bug. Will I bring it home to my family? On and on it goes. Instead, follow Paul's advice in Philippians 4.8 and think of those things, he says, that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, notice, meditate on these things. Paul tells us the things that we should think about. And, and then when it's time for me to, you know, to, to, to work on my studies and, and, and for, for, you know, for, this, for like this evening, this morning and during the week, when I begin to start on my studies, I get so lifted up. It changes my whole disposition. You see, there's power in the Word of God. There's joy in the Word of God. There's hope in the Word of God. There's comfort in the peace of God. There's peace in the Word of God. There's rest in the peace of God when I read it. And God is telling us through the psalmist here that he hates vain thoughts. 
Let us not be preoccupied with the things that are taking place right now. Let us be preoccupied with the goodness and the greatness of our God. The more you spend in the Word of God, the day will come. The time will come. When you won't be interested in a lot of the trash that we read or we hear or the things that are going on in this world. Verse 114. He goes on to say, You, God, are my hiding place and my shield, and I hope in your word. Notice, I hope in your word. He says, God, you're my refuge. You're my protection. That's what a shield was used for. And your word is my only source of help. Remember that tonight. Because we are fighting against enemies in the spirit world. And because we are, God has provided us with both offensive and defensive weapons, or I should say equipment, that we can't leave off, not even one piece. And you know, I relate this to, you know, our our doctors and our nurses and those caregivers that are taking care of those patients. They're wearing all kinds of protective gear, masks and, 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 and Tyvek gowns and, and shoe covers and gloves. And, and you know, and they're, they're, it's to keep them from, as the president is calling it, this invisible enemy. He's keeping them. You know, this protective clothing is keeping them from getting, hopefully getting sick. Well, God has given us this protective armor, the same thing, and it's to keep us from being sickened by the, the, the evil in this world, the evil spirit in the world. And God has given it to us for our protection, and we can't leave off one piece of that armor. How foolish it would be for, for a doctor or nurse to, to not wear their gloves, but it has on everything else, or to leave off a mask, but they're wearing everything else. You see, Satan wants to attack us and he wants to start with a mind. Just like he did with Eve. He attacked her mind. Notice, did God really say that? Hmm, let me see. Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Maybe he meant something else. You see, she most likely entertained what the enemy put in her mind. The battle begins in the mind. God speaks about the armor of God that's been provided for us in Ephesians chapter 6. And one of the pieces of of the armor is the helmet of salvation. And the helmet of salvation refers to the mind controlled by God. Because when God controls the mind, Satan can't lead the believer astray. And the Christian who studies his Bible or her Bible learns Bible doctrine is not going to be, uh, uh, who learns Bible doctrine, they're not going to easily be, led, easily be led astray. And wherever Paul ministered, he taught the new believers the truth of the word of God. And this helmet of salvation protected them from Satan's lies. And the word of God will keep you from being a spiritual casualty in this battle You see, God's word is where we get our comfort when our enemies come against us. The psalmist goes on to say that God was both a refuge and a shield to him. God was a hiding place to him to protect him from danger and a shield to protect him in danger, to protect his life from death and his soul from sin. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the shield of faith. 
The shield was about a, a four by two foot shield. It was pretty big, made out of wood. It was covered with tough leather. And when the soldier hold it in front of him, it was to protect him from the spears and the, and the arrows that were flung at him. And Satan, the Bible says, is, is throwing his fiery darts at us. And that shield of, of faith is to deflect those, those fiery darts. Good people are safe under God's protection. He's their shield. He's their help. He's their protection in time of trouble. The psalmist's confidence is in God. And he feels safe. So he's comfortable under God's protection. He says, I hope in your word. Because your word, God, has acquainted me. It's helped me to know you better. And it's assured me of your kindness. You see, if you depend upon God's promises, you will have the benefit of his power and you will be taken under his special protection. Verse 15. The psalmist says, Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of God. He's telling these evildoers, these evil-minded people, he's saying, hey, get away from me. Get out of my life. He says, I plan on obeying God's commands. He says, the commands of my God. The psalmist has made a definite decision. He says, I am going to live a holy life. I will. Notice, I will. Not, you know, I'm going to try. I think I'm going to give it a go. No, he says, I will keep the commandments of my God. And people who choose to keep God's words. You know what? They have to renew the decision to do this every single day that I will keep them. I got to get up every morning and I say, I got to do the will of God. I got to keep his will. I got to keep the word of God. And I got to do it no matter what anybody else does. I have to keep his commandments no matter what temptations might face me. I have to keep God's word no matter what kind of traps are laid before me. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it even if I'm the only one doing it. And I'm going to do it even if I'm surrounded by all kinds of evildoers and even if they desert me. Whatever I've done up to this point, from now on, I'm going to walk as close to God as I possibly can. I'm going to walk with him. They are my, my, they're my God's commandments. So I'm going to keep them. He's God. And if he commands me to do this, or he commands me to do that, or he commands me to go here or go there, he says, I know that my God will only command me to do what's good for me. And whatever he commands me to do, his grace will keep me. So after the psalmist makes this decision that he's going to follow the word of God, he says goodbye to the bad company, to the evildoers, all those around him. In verse 150, notice he says, depart from me, you evildoers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't be deceived. He said, evil company corrupts good habits. And it's true. If you hang out with those who don't believe in the word of God, sooner or later, they can corrupt you. Even those who are walking with the Lord. Don't 
deceive yourself. Don't say, I can, I can do it. I can make it. I don't have to worry about it. Don't let relationships with unbelievers lead you away from Jesus Christ or cause your faith to waver. Paul said clearly, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He said, come out from them. Separate yourself from them, says the Lord. Because if you decide to keep God's commandments, you can't have fellowship with evildoers. You can't. Why? Because bad company is a big hindrance to living a holy life. We can't choose wicked people to be our friends. Now, you wouldn't call them wicked people. But God does. Because God knows the heart. You can't be close with them. That is, you, you, to, to have fellowship with them. You, you, you know, we can't do what they do. Nor do the things that they like. Or, or you know, not, not even with family. Not even with family. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I have written to you not to keep family with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Notice that. We're not to have anything to do with them. The psalmist said in Psalm 1-1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. We can minister to them. If we see them and talk, we, we want to talk to them, to minister to them. But to socialize and just to, to, to hang out and have fellowship, Paul says we can't do it. The psalmist is saying here that the man who obeys God is happy. And he's not going to listen to those who disgrace or ridicule him. How can we hang out with people who ridicule God, who ridicule your faith, who, say, who think you're, you're a religious fanatic and, and, and say that you, you, know, you, you believe in the Bible? How can you trust the word of God? How can we have fellowship with those people? Our friends and our associates can have a big influence on us in, in, in very, you know, subtle ways. But, but, you know, how can we hang out with those again that, that disgrace God or his word? And if we insist on having friends who, who, who ridicule God, who mock him, uh, we might sin by, you know, being unconcerned about the will of God. You know, we might slack up and we might fall into that, that subtle uh, hindrance that, that would take us away from, the, from, the, from our walk with God. This attitude, again, is, is the same as mocking. If we hang around with those and we, we fellowship with those who mock God and ridicule, you know, that it's the same as we having the same attitude as them. Do your friends build up your faith? Are they glad that you're born again? Are they glad that you walk with God? Are they glad because you read the Bible or do they tear you down? 
You know, if they're really true friends, they should help you. They should be happy for you. And they shouldn't get in the way of you drawing closer to God. Verse 116 and 117. The psalmist says to God, Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up, and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes. Notice, continually. Continually. He's asking the Lord to keep him going as he promised. Lord, keep me walking with you as you promised so that I can live. Don't let me get messed up. Don't let me get crushed. Don't let my hope get crushed. Sustain me, Lord. Then I'll meditate on your word, on your statutes, your principles continually. The psalmist is praying here for sustaining grace. And he prays for it twice. He says, uphold me. And again, he says, uphold me. Why? He knows that he can't keep doing what he's supposed to do in his own strength. And he knows that he just might fall into sin unless God's grace stops him. And that's why he's honestly asking for the grace of God to keep him, that that it, it will help him to stay a man of integrity and to keep him from falling and to keep him from getting weary in well-doing. And for God's grace so that he won't turn away from God and do evil. The psalmist said in Psalm 41, 12, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. It's God who holds us up. We can only stand as long as God holds us up. We can't go any further than he carries us. It's all God. And the psalmist is honestly pleading for the grace of God. And you know what? He's asking God for this grace based on the promise that God will give us his grace. He's promised us grace. He's depending, the psalmist is depending upon God's promise for this grace and he's expecting it from God. He says again, uphold me. Notice what he says, according to your word. Notice that. That's an important, those are important words. I'm asking you to hold me up, God, because you have said you would in your word that I may live. And don't let me be ashamed of my hope, God. Hold me up and I'll be safe. Because if you don't, Lord, if you don't do it, I'm going to be ashamed of my hope. And you know what? People are going to call me a fool for being so gullible, for believing in such a thing. But those who hope in God's word, they can be sure that the word of God will not fail them. And they will never be ashamed of their hope in God. They'll never be disappointed. And the psalmist is praying for God's grace so that, that, that he so desperately needs and, and the great help that it would be to him. Uphold me, Lord, so that I can live. And he's suggesting that he couldn't live without God's grace. And you know, he's right. We can't live without God's grace. 
We need God's grace. All day long, all night long, all of our life. Because without God's grace, man, he would fall into sin. We would fall into sin. We'd, 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 you know, we'd fall into death. We'd fall into hell if God didn't hold us up. But being supported by the hand of God, the psalmist says, I'll live. And I'll keep up, Lord, my spiritual life. And I will be assured of eternal life. Hold me up, Lord, and I'll be safe. I'll be out of danger. I won't be afraid of danger. And he makes his decision. The psalmist makes his decision based on his strength in God's grace. Lord, I can continue to do what I am called to do. I can continue to do my duty because your grace holds me up. And he says, and I will observe your statutes continually. I will never, Lord, turn my eyes away from you or remove my foot from the path that you have laid before me. I will occupy myself and I will delight myself in your statutes. Again, statutes is another word for his word. If God's right hand holds us up, then in his strength, we have to go about our duty with diligence and joy. Verse 118 through 120. The psalmist says, You reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The psalmist says, Lord, I've rejected all of those who have, who have turned away from your principles because they're only fooling themselves. He said, all of the wicked are basically the scum that you skim off. No wonder I love and obey your decrees. I tremble in fear of you. I fear your judgment. Here's God's judgment on wicked people that wander from his statutes. That take their, their standards, you know, they take their, their words from another source. They don't, they don't use God's standards. They don't take God's word. They take their standards from another source. And they won't let God rule over them. They won't let God lead them. Any departure, any drifting away, any strain away, turning away from God's word is definitely a mistake. And you know what? It will prove to be a deadly one. These are the wicked of the earth. They only look after earthly things and they lay up treasures on the earth. They live for pleasure. They live in pleasure on the earth. And they're strangers and they're enemies to God and the things of God. Notice how God deals with them. That is the wicked. Notice that so that you won't fear them or envy them. God brings them to ruin. He brings them to a total shameful ruin. He makes them his footstool. It doesn't matter who they are, how powerful they are, how high or low they are, how rich or poor they are. He can cut them down to size. Genesis 11, 4 through 9. It says, come, the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Notice, whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. 
But the Lord said, come, let us go down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the, uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building a city. Notice they said, let us, let us build a, a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. What does God do? He brings them down. God does that very easily. He does it very well. Amos 2.9 says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and, and, and he was as strong as the yokes. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. God's done that so many times. So many times. To so many people. And you know what? He will, and he's going to continue to do it. Why? Because he resists the proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And God will defeat those who continually oppose him and his kingdom. Notice God removes them like dross. Wicked people are like dross, even though it's mixed with the good metal. And it seems to be the the same as the good metal. Even though it looks good and it seems to be good metal, it has to be separated from the good metal. And in the smelting process, heat is applied to the metal that contains, or, or to the ore that contains the precious metal. Now, dross is the residue that's left at the end of the smelting process after the metal has been separated from the impurities. What the, what the, what the refiner does, he scrapes off the dross at the top and it's discarded. And all that's left is the pure metal itself. Now, dross was a symbol that the Bible used for the, inner, the, the, for the imperfection of sinful, sinful Israel. And in God's eyes, the wicked are like dross. They're like worthless things. The dross is the, residu- is the impurities. It's the scum. And God sees the wicked as worthless things. He sees them as the dross, the scum, and, refu- and refuse of the earth. And he compares them with the dross that's in the fine silver. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 13, 30, that there's a day coming when the tares are going to be separated from the wheat. And they're not going to have any place in the congregation. And then they're going to be gathered to be burned. Proverbs 25, 4 and 5 says, Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. God removes those or removes them, the wicked, because they go astray from his word. They don't, they don't take stock in his, script, in his word. They won't submit to the word. They won't submit to God. And because of that, they will be condemned by his word. And because of their deceit, is, and he says their deceit is falsehood. That is, they're only deceiving themselves by setting up you know, false rules, substandard rules. He says that, that they're going to be dealt with because they oppose God's word. They've strayed away from it. And they go about deceiving others, acting like they're righteous, and doing their devious acts of disobedience. So their craftiness is nothing more than lies. And their strategy is nothing but deceit and faithlessness. 
And the God of truth hates this, and he will punish it. Punish it. So in closing, the psalmist noticed God's judgments. And he learned from them. When he saw the ruin of the wicked, it helped him to, first of all, love God's word more. The psalmist said, I see the result of sin. And so I love your testimonies. I love your word. Because they warn me. Your word warns me to watch out for those dangerous paths. And, 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 and they, 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 they warn me to keep me off the paths of the destroyer. So we see the word of God fulfilled in his judgments on sin and sinners. So we should see it. We should love it. Secondly, it helped the psalmist to become more fearful of the wrath of God. He said, notice, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Instead of insulting and condemning and saying to the wicked, you're getting what you deserve. And sometimes we can get self-righteous and think, well, you know what? They don't love God. They don't follow God. They don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. They don't pray. You're getting what you deserved. But the psalmist didn't, didn't take that approach. He didn't assault them or condemn them. He didn't say you're getting what you deserve. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. My flesh trembles before you, God, because I know what happens to the wicked. What we read and what we hear about of God's judgments on wicked people, it should make us, first of all, reverence God. That's a fear of God, a holy fear of God. It should make us reverence his holiness and it should make us stand in awe of who he is. First Samuel 6, 20, it says, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And secondly, it should make us fear him so that we don't offend him. So we be careful not to offend him and to invite his wrath. The fear of God should keep good men, good women from sin. And especially when judgment starts in the house of God. And hypocrites are separated like dross and discarded. Father, once again, we thank you for your precious word, God. Father, we pray that we would learn from your word, God. That it would be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, God. To show us clearly, God, where we are to walk, where we are to go. And Father, it's only you that we can go to for protection, for safety, and for hope. And Father, I pray for those out there right now who may be watching, God. That Father, they would find their hope in Jesus Christ. The only hope that this world has. The only hope that is a hope that we can depend upon only hope that will come to pass. And so, Father, may your spirit just touch those hearts today, God, that need Christ. And, Father, may they come to that place right now where they invite Jesus Christ into their heart, asking him to be their Lord and their Savior, asking him to forgive them of their sins and to help them to walk in holiness and to walk in Christ's righteousness. So, Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.